Hello there, it's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Way, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Way wherever you get your podcasts. The year is 2014, and this podcast episode is sponsored by the only proper pastry shop in Zubrauka, Mendel's Bakery. If you want a cortisone chocolate, you've got to come here. The movie? The Grand Budapest Hotel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear, and this is a podcast where we're endeavoring to find the 100 best movies ever made. And when we do, we're going to blast them into space. Last week, we talked about Frozen, and we continue our theme of cold with Wes Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel. But before we get to that, Amy, a lot of conversation happening over our Frozen episode. There was a really interesting uh, article that came out last week about Peter Dinklage uh, talking about the remake of Snow White and really how messed up it is that Disney was getting out in front of casting a non-white actress as Snow White, but didn't do anything to address how they were going to deal with a movie called Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which which in Peter Dinklage's opinion is incredibly problematic. It's progressive on one end, but completely uh, clueless on the other. It sounds like Peter Dinklage might agree with me that sometimes Disney makes big, bold statements for their own marketing purposes without really thinking about it all the way down. Wow. I mean, we'll see. We'll see. But I I mean, I do feel for Dinklage. Like, I can't imagine what it's like to be such a talented actor and yet, you know, have a movie like Snow White get announced. And I'm almost, I would swear, like his mentions on Twitter, if he's on Twitter, are all like, can't wait for you to star in this movie. Oh my God, blah, 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 fan casting. I mean, like he must feel so frustrated. Especially when he's so amazing in this movie that is up for Oscar contention this year, this uh, Cyrano. Cyrano, yeah, he's fantastic. But I do also just want to give the benefit of the doubt that they might have been dealing with this, but they didn't announce it yet, you know, because the movie was not announced as Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Uh, It was just announced as Snow White. And apparently Disney did come out and say that they are working uh, within the dwarf community to make sure that they are doing correct representation. Now, whether or not that is, uh, you know, after the fact, I have no idea, but it is sometimes a tricky line to walk because there's no proof that they weren't. But now I imagine, you know, you're on the defense. But I also think if you're going to remake Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, you have to be in front of something like that because you have to be aware that it could have the ability to be incredibly offensive if handled poorly. Agreed. I mean, I will say as a critic, I'm open. I will watch. I will look. I will think for myself, but I will not try to get involved in a Twitter pylon. I just like the first part of Peter Dinklage's comment where he's like, essentially, Amy, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Amy, you and Peter Dinklage have formed an incredible bond. And I do think, honestly... I'm I'm so happy to be on his side. Oh, my God. Thank (laughs) God. Me and Dinklage against the world. Let's do it. 
I do think it's interesting, however, that, you know, as someone who thinks of themselves as progressive, that it wasn't the first thought I had when I saw that casting announcement. And I think, you know, it just goes to show you that, you know, our lenses are sometimes closed or we accept a certain type of progressivism, but not uh, it doesn't necessarily uh, go out wider. So I'm glad that Peter Dinklage was there to give voice to a concern, at least. Uh, And hopefully it is for the better. Yeah. Oh, and now I've got just fantasies of the apocalypse happening and me and Dinklage sword by sword storming (laughs) through living and surviving and and being two tough people who can always say we were a little bit right about this. I mean, I will tell you, you know, from <laughs> everything I've seen of Peter Dinklage in film and TV, you want him by your side because yes. he's going to kick some major ass. Uh, <laughs> I will uh, I will also say that uh, it seems to be that Frozen was a lot more uh, divisive within the listeners of the show. Like people really just absolutely loved it or just hated it. And it's a really interesting movie. And I guess you get that in any sort of giant popular film. I thought for sure this would be one that everyone loved or at least uh, had a warm feeling towards. But, you know, look, there are Pauls in the world and there are Amy's in the world. We're back at our, you know, Christmas Story National Lampoon's conversation all over again. It's, uh, you know, (laughs) different flavors, different different strokes for different folks. Uh, I mean, I just keep thinking, though, about a part in the conversation where we were talking about people hating Frozen for the wrong reason. Hating it mm-hmm. because it is a girly movie about yes. princesses. But I stand against that forever. See a movie, think about it, do your own research. Oh, God. Um, and I am curious. I would love an update from the kid whose um, who's dad, the magazine writer, let him call up uh, Kristen Bell and tell her that he didn't like her movie. Come on, I want to know, like, what is he that. doing now and what is he saying on Twitter? Please help us out. We need to find that kid. We need to find and shame children. If this show has done anything, that's the one goal that we have, to find the 100 best movies and to shame, publicly shame children. Now, Amy, we are going to get into another, I think, uh, divisive conversation today because we are finally talking about a Wes Anderson film that we have teased many a time on this show. Are you ready to unspool it? The year is 2014. A burgeoning global Ebola pandemic claims over 5,000 human lives. Uh, Michael Brown, a black man, is killed by an officer just three weeks after Eric Garner is murdered by the police. Protests turn violent in Ferguson, Missouri, where the militarized police bring in tear gas and rubber bullets. Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 vanishes somewhere in the Indian Ocean. Headlines include stories about the Ice Bucket Challenge, the Fappening, the Sony Hack, Bill Cosby, and ISIS. The year's popular films are Interstellar, Guardians of the Galaxy, John Wick, The Babadook, and today's film, The Grand Budapest Hotel. Amy, who's in it? I mean, it's a a cannonball run of a film as far as stars go. And what's it about? Who made it? And what, of course, was on the radio? The Grand Budapest Hotel, starring, yes, a cast of 17. Everybody you've ever loved has in, is in this movie. Defoe, Ronan, Swinton, Norton, Adrian Brody, Jeff Goldblum, Harvey Keitel, Jude Law, Bill Murray, Jason Schwartzman, Owen Wilson, Leah Sidhu, blah, 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 blah. And of course, our leads. We'll get to all of that in a second. It is directed, of course, by Wes Anderson. It is written by Wes Anderson with an assist from the artist Hugo Guinness, who's worked with Wes Anderson in the past. He did some art for Royal Tenenbaums. He voiced one of the farmers in The Fantastic Mr. Fox. And here he stepped up as a writer who helped shape the story of this grand hotel. That is not in Budapest, but in the country of Zubrauka. 
What is it about? Well, this movie is a series of nesting stories about a now-dead author who once wrote a book on this hotel, and the book was based on a true story of something that happened in the hotel. And with all of these kind of time-jumping things, we see this world in the present. We see it in 1985. We see it in 1968. And we see it in 1932. And it's in 1932 where most of the action takes place. Because back then, the hotel is run by the fastidious and profane Monsieur Gustave, played by Ray Fiennes, who gets into trouble when he inherits a priceless painting from a dead woman, played by Tilda Swinton, and her family goes nuts, like violently nuts. Meanwhile, Monsieur Gustave has to train his new lobby boy, Zero Mustafa, played by Tony Revolori, while there is a war starting to rumble on the horizon. And because of this whole framing story that we've already seen, we know that communism is going to happen, that the hotel will lose all of its splendor. And what does it really mean for one beautiful hotel to get destroyed, you know, in like the whole devastation of war? Well, it kind of means nothing, but it also kind of means everything. And if you believe that the destruction of something beautiful is everything, then this is, to me, a beautiful, quirky, fast-moving, deadpan, and very emotional movie about cherishing the wonders that humans can create when they aren't trying to kill each other. Take a listen. It's not a very flattering portrait, I'm afraid. I was once considered a great beauty. What's the F stand for? Fritz? France. France. I knew it! He's making a funny face. That's a migratory visa with stage three worker status, France, darling. He's with me. Come outside, please. Now, wait a minute. Sit down, Zero. His papers are in order. I cross-referenced them myself with the Bureau of Labor and Servitude. You can't arrest him simply because he's a bloody immigrant. He hasn't done anything wrong. Stop it, Mr. Never mind, Mr. Gustav. Let them proceed. Ow! That hurt! Oh. 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 You filthy goddamn pockmark fascist assholes! Take your hands off my lobby boy! The Grand Budapest Hotel was released on March 7th, 2014 and became Wes Anderson's biggest hit. I mean, the box office haul of this movie is more than double his second most popular film, which is The Royal Tenenbaums, and we did that on the show last year. We should, we should bring that out from the archives. People should take a listen. What was going on in the zeitgeist the weekend it came out? Well, the number one song on the charts that weekend would also become the top-selling song of that year. And coincidentally or not, it's, also, it's a song that also compares human emotions to architecture. It is Pharrell's Happy. You know, but I gotta ask, he says, clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. How does a room without a roof feel to you? It feels like it's open. It's like you're on... You're on a roof. A room without a roof is a roof. A room without a roof is a roof? Right? What? The roof is like the ceiling? A room without a roof is a roof. It's a it's it's a four quadrant thing without a roof. But it's I mean, to me that that sounds cold and exposed. Well, Amy, he's not saying like live in that room. He's like go to that room and be so excited that you're in a very different room than you're normally in. I'd be excited. Like, Hey, if you come over to my house and I see a room without a roof, I'm like, this is cool. I'm going to clap my hands. He's not inviting me to live there during like the, I don't even know where it is. I mean, maybe it's a warm place. Maybe it's a, 
Again, I just think what it's a nice, it's, what if a it's nicely Finland? appointed roof. What, what if it's Zubroka? Also, he's not Again. saying that he's not saying clap along if you feel like a human in a room without a roof. You're just the room itself. You're the walls. You're the wallpaper. I mean, it gets rained. You're getting destroyed. Look, we have to save this for our Pharrell podcast. And again, that is on Stitcher Premium. Unfortunately, that is a $50 a month subscription. It's uh, called for that Unhappy. One. Yeah, Unhappy. <laughs> and we just break down the true dark intentions of Pharrell uh, at every given step. I do have uh, a, a memory of that song, Happy. And I know this has nothing to do with what we were talking about here today. But uh, my son was born when that song was a hit. So when this movie came out, was when my son was born. And it was the only song that when we got him home from the hospital, I could play that gave him some comfort. Like the whatever it was, rhythmically, that song worked for my son. So I listened to it so many times because it was a soothing song for a newborn baby. So I I do appreciate Pharrell uh, for giving me those like three minutes of uh, respite in a very tumultuous time. That's a beautiful story. Thank you. That that story made me very happy. <laughs> so, Amy, let's just start off big. We've been talking about the Grand Budapest Hotel for a long time. We talked about the Royal Tenenbaums. You really felt that the Grand Budapest Hotel is his best work. And I think in watching this, I felt the same way I felt in watching Fargo. Maybe this is the best combined version of Wes Anderson. It has a little bit of everything that you love all together in a story that truly is, um, at least on a Wes Anderson level, epic. I mean, I would only argue that the stop-motion films probably have as much scope as Grand Budapest Hotel. I mean, they, like, there's a lot more adventure in The Fantastic Mr. Fox uh, and The Isle of Dogs, but most of his films are a lot smaller. And this movie really is big. I think it's exciting. I think it's engaging. And I do think especially based on its box office, it pulled a lot of people in. Yeah, I mean, it pulled me in for sure, because up until this point, I had seen everything that Wes Anderson had done and it had left me pretty cold. You know, I guess, given our theme of this whole miniseries, I thought that he was a stylist who made films that were adorable, but sometimes empty. I I mean, I liked Royal Tenenbaums. I liked elements of um, Rushmore. But this film to me came out at a string where I was not into what Wes Anderson was up to at all. I was not on his vibe at like starting with Darjeeling Limited, a movie that oh. I thought was just atrocious, really, really terrible. Um, all wallpaper, all trains, all like scenery and like a story about three people that I didn't care about at all. Just like three annoying brothers. I, I really was not into Moonrise Kingdom. I thought that movie was so treacly. And, and I think I just carry like lots of latent annoyance at all of the Halloweens I had to spend seeing people dressed as the couple in Moonrise Kingdom. To me, that is still like the standout, irritating Halloween couples costume. Um, And those two films together made me feel like he was just a guy who, you know, tweaked you, sprinkled sugar on things and had nothing at all to say. So I went into Grand Budapest in this mood of like, I can't believe I have to sit here and watch another Wes Anderson film. What is he going to like wallpaper over my eyes today? And I walked out like in love, in love with this movie and, and with a whole new appreciation for who he is as an artist that is carried forth. I feel like I'm one of the only people who will stand up and loudly talk about why The French Dispatch, his movie that came out last year, is a wonderful film that people did not give a proper chance to. Um 
people who see the movie the way that I did as a movie about wallpaper, not a movie about like actual emotion. Through Grand Budapest, I understand Wes Anderson now. And I'm just so excited to talk about this movie. I'm so excited to hear you talk about this because I also had a very interesting reaction to the Grand Budapest Hotel. When I saw it, like I mentioned, I just had my son. I probably saw it months after it left the theater and on, you know, video on demand. And I'm sure I was present, but not fully in. I was like, this is great. I like it. But it didn't like really connect with me. And then rewatching it last night, I was like, oh, I get it. I get why people say this is their favorite Wes Anderson. And I think for me, it shot right to the top of the list. It really is everything that I love altogether. And I'm talking about, you know, Bottle Rocket is a movie that I have such a strong connection to. I think Bottle Rocket is fantastic. And then I thought that, you know, Royal Tenenbaums is probably a little bit better than that. I know I'm skipping over Rushmore. Rushmore is fantastic, but it felt to me like it's not my favorite. I love it, but it like those two were always jockeying for my favorite Wes Anderson slot. And here, I think he does something that I hadn't felt in a while, which is you get this heart. And I don't remember much of Moonrise Kingdom, but after Royal Tenenbaums, I feel like the emotional component of these films were kind of becoming a little bit twee, right? They were like, it was there, but it wasn't like a real connective emotion. And I feel like Gene Hackman did such a great job at like grounding that, you know, that patriarch of the family and Ben Stiller was so good there. I, I just connected with those characters. They felt real. And I felt that all throughout this film. Exactly. I mean, like what clicked over for you? For me, it was realizing that this is a movie that is at its core, a defense of art, a defense, I think, of the kind of movies that Wes Anderson wants to make, where, you know, a person like him, like Ray Fiennes's, you know, Mr. Gustave, fusses over the details, you know, tries to create a world of like beauty and splendor, is a little bit crass and profane while doing it, which I think Wes Anderson can be as well. You know, like that can't, you know, is it once like a poet with a really filthy mouth, like the way that he talks about people like Tilda Swinton, one of the guests of the hotel. There's really no point in doing anything in life because it's all over in the blink of an eye. And the next thing you know, rigor mortis sets in. Oh, how the good die young. With any luck, she's left a few clubecks for your old friend, but one never knows until the ink is dry on the death certificate. She was dynamite in the sack, by the way. She was 84, Monsieur Gustave. Mm, I've had older. When you're young, it's all fill at stake. But as the years go by, you have to move on to the cheaper cuts, which is fine with me because I like those. More flavorful, so they say. That, that this is this character who, you know, I think represents a type of being an artist. You know, his artwork is this hotel, this kind of spell that a guest enters and lives almost in this painting of his creation that he has made happen by being like the leader of this design, you know, the leader of this kind of dollhouse in a way, like giant adult size dollhouse in that this movie defends the beauty of creating such a thing when the rest of the world is like violent and angry and doesn't appreciate the splendor. Absolutely. I think the key to this movie, the thing that makes me connect to it 100% is Ray Fiennes. Ray Fiennes might be my favorite Wes Anderson actor because 
he really nails this performance. And I know Bill Murray is associated as being like the go-to, the muse of Wes Anderson in some way, you know, that he's in all the films and he's always great in those films. And, and really and truly, like, without that performance in Rushmore, I think, you know, we don't respect Bill Murray for what he can do on a dramatic side. And whenever Bill Murray pops up, he feels engaged and wonderful and I love him. But it's always going to be Bill Murray to a certain degree, like, and I think Bill Murray has amazing, amazing facets. Like, I think he can tap into so many sides of his own emotion and comedy, and he can play so many moments. But Ray Fiennes truly is a different character than I've ever seen Ray Fiennes play. He is creating a tempo and a pace that feels to me like the perf- perfect Wes Anderson tone and pace. It almost matches the way that he edits. And I think... Yeah, exactly. It's like clipped, fast, suave, confidently. It's almost like he's dancing across the ballroom. And and that's my difference between him and Bill Murray, not to put them against each other. I'm just saying that Bill Murray is going to give you a great Bill Murray performance. And I think Ray Fiennes is giving a wonderful Wes Anderson performance. And yeah. to that point, this is the most biographical film that Wes Anderson makes. You know, I think Royal Tenenbaums, we talked about this is a that movie was about, you know, seeing these other kids that he knew and kind of extrapolating their story. But this to me feels right, like, like he was a Texas kid aspiring to a different lifestyle. Yeah. You know, aspiring to like a New York lifestyle and trying to capture that. And I think Bottle Rocket's also a little bit of, you know, uh, Owen Wilson's influence on him. This is purely, I think, the way Wes Anderson walks through life. Like it's one of the few times that we actually even see a character interact with the environment, like what you were saying, like he is touching things, he's fixing things. He is allowed to do it. He is the director. And there's something that I think this movie has that the other films don't, which is he is able to capture his own essence in a way. I, You know, I, I think obviously everything that we do from an artistic side is a little piece of us, but this really feels like I am seeing the most into Wes Anderson of who he wanted to be or who he was, or I, there's something about it that I can't, I can't separate the two. No, you're right. Like this is the kind of film that Wes Anderson can only make at a point in his career when he has become Wes Anderson, when there is an idea of what a Wes Anderson is and when he's got the clout to spend money to make a movie like this and have every movie star in the world, you know, be in it. Like this is the movie that comes out when you are a Wes Anderson who is finally feeling confident in your voice and like what you're adding to the film landscape. And it this is a film that I think makes it really clear that he feels that what he adds to the landscape is sticking up, I feel, for you know, beauty in a time when he right. feels like it's too decadent for modern taste. I mean, he even basically says so right here in this clip that's from the 60s where uh, older Zero is talking about his love for the hotel, even though now in the 60s it doesn't fit into this kind of communist modern world. The thermal baths are very beautiful. They were in their first condition. It couldn't be maintained, of course, too decadent for current tastes. But I love it all just the same, this enchanting old ruin. I mean, to me, that feels like Wes Anderson saying, it's 2014. I see that you just want superhero movies and kind of like high-toned looking action thrillers and people running around and Liam Neeson shooting people. But that is not me. And I want to make movies about adult things and adult grace and about art. I want to make an art movie about art. 
there's this subtle thing happening though behind uh, Jason Schwartzman when he's this concierge. Like you see the painting, a boy with apple. This like painting that like we're going to realize throughout the whole movie, you know, is a, a painting that people have died for. Many people die for to own this painting. And now it's just here in the background of this hotel next to a bunch of like plastic keys and nobody is even like looking at it, taking notice of it, appreciating it. It's almost like the the painting is kind of asking us like, is it still valuable if nobody even cares about it? I mean, I, th- I think kind of throughout it, like Wes Anderson is drawing attention to the people who even notice this beautiful painting that represents like beautiful sublime art, art worth living and dying for. And, and saying, you know, like, Adrian Brody and his family obviously don't even deserve to have this painting because like when Monsieur Gustave takes it down and puts up like that kind of nudie art instead, they don't even notice because they don't even look at the art because they don't even care about the art. Right. Although I guess like Monsieur Gustave takes the art and wraps it in card in like paper and he doesn't even really look at it either. It's like, well, they're all fighting for this art and it's never really gazed well, upon. Well, no, he knew the respect. art. I think he was trying to save it. Like, like, like he... Like when he heard it, he knew exactly what it was. Oh, he said it yeah. looked like him. Like he was connected to it. I just think that he wasn't like gawking at it. He, no, his totally. goal was to save and hide it. Yeah, totally. I, I think what I'm saying more is like the tragedy of him never getting to look at it again. Yes. Like he's racing around, but never gets to look at it. And so yeah. then here, yeah, it's just like kind of a throwaway piece of art. Like, and I don't know exactly what he's saying with it, but I think he's saying something about like who, who decides or appreciates what is worth value. Well, I think the one thing you can say about Wes Anderson is he doesn't care what anyone wants him to make. It doesn't feel like he's even engaging in the conversation of the larger film world. Like, And I love that. It's like, I'm going to make my own thing. We know that every couple of years, something is going to come out that doesn't feel like it's reactionary. And it just feels like I am making my own piece. Oh, but, but I, I feel will... like it is reactionary. I feel like they're super reactionary because, I mean... His films, this one and and also uh, French Dispatch, which I think are really similar, they both end with this idea of like a funeral, of death, of like graveyards. His films enter into a world where like the story he's going to tell is already dead. You know, like the, the French Dispatch is all about a magazine editor who we know is dying from the very beginning part of the film. We know he's dead. And like once he dies, this magazine will be over and you go back and you get to live the life of what this magazine was and the stories well, it told. But, you know, it's ending. And I think I, he I think I think he you, frames it in that to say he knows that everything around him like there, that there's a wasteland and this film is his like sanctuary. I agree that he is commenting on the state of like culture and art but not no one's making him like he doesn't do one for the studio and oh, one yeah. for him. Like, no. I don't think that he's being pushed in a direction like, yes, this is the way he, he feels in the movie that he wants to make. And I think they all share a similarity, but I don't think that he is feeling the pressure of, oh, I need to do something a little bit more mainstream. I need to do something, you know, that is fitting in this box. And and oh, to me, right. totally. that is rare for a filmmaker to have this long of a career and never really bend in that way. And in a way, in this film, which he doesn't bend at all, it's his most successful because I think it brings together a lot of the elements that may have been the best parts of the other films. I'll just bring up one point because we're talking about the big budget films. Um, I feel like we get to see Wes Anderson do a James Bond film here. And part of that is in the ski scene with a Willem Dafoe. There is, if you listen to the music track there, there's a slight James Bondian quality through like the Wes Anderson instrumentation of that chase scene. 
he's not like doing an homage but it's like if he was to direct a James Bond, you get a little taste of what that would be. And that whole side plot with Willem Dafoe is so rich and interesting and uh, and just kind of bizarre. And I feel like what we really see here are two things really working in tandem, which often I think isn't the case in a Wes Anderson film, which is like the plot of this movie is so strong and the motor of it is just pushing it forward and forward and forward. It's a character study. It's a a mystery of a murder. It's a crime caper. It's a prison escape film. And it's also a rags to riches story, a biography. Like there's so many plot lines that I think are working together to really push this film forward. And I liked French Dispatch a lot. I thought it was really great, but it's very segmented. Like I would have liked to see more of the newsroom, how the, I love the way that's structured ultimately. Like it's great. You get these little vignettes, but I would have liked to have seen that world. And I, I watched them actually back to back. So I really was hoping that French dispatch would have that same kind of, we're in this little world and how does the newspaper run and what's going on here. And I found myself so much more connected to those scenes And every time we got into a story, while beautifully shot, and I love the characters, and I love the choices, it just, it didn't emotionally connect to me. There wasn't that driving sense, even though everything in it was beautiful and well acted. It's funny. I mean, okay, A, you've got me thinking that Willem Dafoe is like the greatest Bond villain we've never been given. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'd love to see that. Love to see that. I mean, he's more scary than any henchman and by the way i have he to kills also a say cat. he kills a cat yeah the way he kills that cat just throwing it out the window and the pregnant pauses like did he just throw my cat out the window and yeah looking at it like and the, the yeah. fingers getting cut off everything is so it's so funny but it's also you could play all that for deadly serious in a james bond film no it's true it's true and what i like about the cat scene too is that you know Afterwards, it like pans over to the sisters. He's like, did he really just throw my cat out of the window? And the sisters are like, no. This stinks, sister. Did he just throw my cat out the window? I don't think did you? I think that's so funny because under the surface of this movie, I think there's also a story of like, who does what when fascism? You know, when like when anger and violence kind of comes into your beautiful world. And I think like William Defoe is one of the figures of that. And one of the reactions is people like the sisters who are just, you know, wealthy deny it. And they're like, it's not happening. And so it's like a throwaway gag. But I also feel like it's this commentary on people being willing to ignore violence in the service of everybody just sort of getting along or them at least getting what they want. But back to the James Bond of it all. You know, there is a funny thing that both the French Dispatch and Grand Budapest have in common, which is when it comes time for the action scenes, Wes Anderson is like, you guys don't need to see some sort of like 3D CG, like really cool, realistic action scene. Like in French Dispatch, he does a big car chase just through like cartoon animation. He's like, eh, we don't need to crash some actual cars. Let's just draw some cars. That's fine. And it totally works. And then here in the ski chase, you know, it's incredibly goofy. I mean, it's, parts of it look like they're done with sort of cutouts. There's models, you know, the the funiculars and all of the ski. What do you call this thing? Ski cars? What do you call those things? That people, uh, you can tell they don't the gondolas. ski. 
the ski gondolas. The gondolas look like they're, you know, car- cardboard models. And he is kind of drawing attention to the fact that, like, why are we in movies trying to make things look realistic? Why do we have to make all of our car chases look like real car chases? Like, let's just, you know, we can still be thrilling even by playing around with it, by doing it with style. Well, yeah. And I think, you know, this conversation probably is going to come back to this a couple of times and maybe we've already hit this on the head, but you know, Wes Anderson, I think can be accused of style over substance. Like his movies are beautiful to watch regardless of anything else. You want to live in this world. You want to touch these objects, but this is a film where he does push both to the limits. And I think French dispatch does that too. Like I, I really do love the shorts. I think I just was longing for more. Like I was longing for more. I was longing for the world that was set up in French Dispatch, where here we really blow out the world, whether it is the Society of the Secret Keys. You know, the idea of, you know, that opening sequence with Ray Fiennes, we understand how he is with every woman with that one scene. We understand who he is when he stands up you know, to the soldiers. And I think that's actually really interesting too. You talk about, you know, Wes Anderson, you know, being this last bastion of what is good and what we should, and art is important. And I think that Gustav stands up for what is important and wants the proper, the proper things. Um, And he does that through standing up for zero. He is a stand up person, even though he has all these, uh, you know, weird quirks and could be an abrasive guy. He also is a loyal person, which I think Wes Anderson is, as you can see the casting uh, in all of his films. Like once you are a part of his clan, you are in his clan and he will use you and find ways to use you. And I think give you some of the best performances you've ever had. I, for one, think Adrian Brody, this might be my favorite Adrian Brody performance. Like he captures Adrian Brody's voice and does something with him that I don't really often see. I love him in this. I mean, this movie is, I mean, love boat style in every character has like a reveal. Every character is like a push in. And if they're on screen for two seconds or half of the movie, uh, they all are equally weighted. And I think there's a, there's a joy in Wes Anderson knowing that the audience is excited to see each one of these people pop onto screen. You know, even seeing Bob Balaban as a member of the society, like he's barely in the film, but he gets this equal weight. Like he, he has joy in kind of presenting these people to you. And I think it is, you know, going back to Rushmore, a similar idea. Like, you know, uh, in that movie, Max is trying to create something elevated for a high school audience. Like what, can challenge you. We're not just going to do arsenic and old lace on a stage. We're going to do, you know, uh, whatever it is, like Scarface. So we're going to, we're going to push the limits here. And I think one of the things that gets undercut, I think on conversations about Wes Anderson is there's a joy in his filmmaking. I think it, it gets all wrapped up in, oh, he's twee and he likes his little things and he wants the paper to look like this and everything like that. But I think what he really is trying to do is create something that's so unique, like what you're saying, the, whether it's the cutouts or the models, that this movie like lives with you. It's not disposable. Like He takes so much time and care to create a movie-going experience. And yes, maybe that misses the mark, but I do think that's the mark of a, a great director going, I want to give you everything I can possibly give you. I want every frame to just explode. And... I don't know. I feel an excitement 
in this movie and in a lot of his movies of like, you see what I did there? Like, it's not like, look at me how cool I am. It's like, I gave you this gift. I'm giving you another gift. And and that's why even at the worst Wes Anderson film or the movie I don't like the most, uh, I leave going, I just had this amazing bedtime story read to me in, in some way. I mean, that's interesting thinking of Monsieur Gustav as an as almost like an older parallel version of Max. Like, what does somebody with yeah. that energy to create do at a different era, at a different age, you know, when you're a different person? And what I think makes this film feel more alive than like some sort of twee defense of being twee is that he lets Monsieur Gustav, you know, like be a mess. I mean, he lets his conversations even be a mess. Like every time he's sort of nice, he's also a little bit kind of cutting or, or the conversations that you see him have with people aren't written in a way that feels like tidally scripted, even though even though the dialogue is very exact, it's not like here's the scene where he sits down with Tilda Swinton and they have a conversation about this. It's like they start to have a conversation about like her needing to leave or what she has to do. And then in his own film, like Mr. Gustav gets distracted by telling her that he hates her nail polish. And that's where the scene ends. You know, it doesn't end on the buttons. It ends on like these kind of shaggy loose ends that make the film to me feel a lot more alive. You know, that, that there's always the surprise. That's what I like about him is it's not just airless beauty that kind of exists. You're like, oh, what a gorgeous shot. Oh, I love you. Thank you for showing me the symmetry. He takes this beauty, but then whenever you think you know what to expect, he like cuts to a visual joke or he puts in a beat that you're not expecting. Or, you know, he ends this like, to me, beautiful speech about like the role of civilization, but it's being like, eh, fuck it. You see, there are still faint glimmers of civilization left in this barbaric slaughterhouse that was once known as humanity. Indeed, that's what we provide in our own modest, humble, insignificant. Oh, fuck it. It, it's, it's that balance that I think keeps this film really just invigorating to man, me. Because, like, he's if a he man was, who yeah. dies for his principles. Well, right. right. Like, but and that's what he is. At the end of the day, like he can have all these flaws, but he's he stands for something. He and stands he, or, for something. But, yeah. but also, but also, I mean, like, he's not perfect. I, I love how much he's not perfect. I mean, OK. What do you think his deal is with the older ladies in the hotel? Because I just interpreted it as like he romances the older ladies at the hotel in the hope of being put into their will. But then I was watching this interview with Ray Fiennes where he was like, I think he was actually just straight up getting paid for sex like a sex worker. Uh, he is not shy in... Um favoring or, 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 or showing attention to older ladies, wealthy older women, um, who may or may not pay him, but we feel they might. But uh... I don't ever want to dispute an actor on how they interpreted the role, but I guess I saw it as part of his job to give them this experience. He says at the beginning of the film, she's been coming here for 19 years or what, you know, however many years she's been there. He's like, that's a feat. And I think... He will keep them there throughout everything. And when he's insulting to someone, he's insulting to them not because he's trying to be a mean dick. And I think that that's the difference of Bill Murray's character in Rushmore. Like, he's a dick and he's mean and he's very funny. But here, when he's telling, you know, Tilda Swinton that her nail polish disgusts him, it's because aesthetically it does. Like, he, he can hyper-focus on one thing. I hear that. 
I think there's one time when he decides he really just wants to go for it and be rude, right? That's when he's like just broken out of the jail where he's been arrested um, for like all of this painting theft and blah, 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 blah. He's finally out. He's finally like free to be back in civilization. He meets up with his lobby boy, Zero, and he realizes that Zero forgot his panache, his like cologne mm-hmm. that makes him super happy. And it makes him mad. It makes him mad, not just for like his own sake, but because like Zero is also supposed to be in the game of anticipating people's needs and doing whatever needs to be done and going above and beyond and thinking about other people, right? That's what he's supposed to be doing as a lobby boy. That's what Ray Fiennes did when he worked his way up from lobby boy. Like he has the gift of thinking about what he needs to do for another person to make their life more comfortable. And Zero fails at that and he loses his temper and he does it in a way that gets really mean and really kind of racist about Zero's background. I forgot the little panache. Honestly, you forgot the lead panache. I don't believe it. I mean, how could you? I've been in jail, Zero. Do you understand how humiliating this is? I smell. <laughs> That's just marvellous, isn't it? I suppose this is to be expected back in... <laughs> Where do you come from again? Axelim al-Jabat. Precisely. I suppose this is to be expected back in Axelim al-Jabat, where one's prized possessions are a stack of filthy carpets and a starving goat, and one sleeps behind a tent flap and survives on wild dates and scarabs. But it's not how I trained you. What on God's earth possessed you to leave the homeland where you very obviously belong and travel unspeakable distances to become a penniless immigrant in a refined, highly cultivated society that, quite frankly, could have gotten along very well without you? The war. Say again. Well, you see, my father was murdered, and the rest of my family were executed by firing squad. Her village was burned to the ground, and those who managed to survive were forced to flee. I left because of the war. I see. So you're you're actually really more of a refugee in that sense? Truly. Well, I suppose I'd better take back everything I just said. What a bloody idiot I am. Pathetic fool. Goddamn selfish bastard. This is disgraceful and it's beneath the standards of the Grand Budapest. I apologize on behalf of the hotel. It's not your fault, Mr. Gustav. You were just upset I forgot the perfume. Don't make excuses for me. I owe you my life. You are my dear friend and protege and I'm very proud of you. You must know that. I'm so sorry, Zero. We're brothers. The one thing that Wes Anderson has been accused of a lot is that his films are very white. They're very, very white. They're very upper class white, too, or they're very specifically uh, a type of culture that is not incredibly inclusive. Yeah, they're very waspy. Yes, exactly. And in this moment, I think he's addressing that. He is berating Zero for this thing but not taking into account where this person has come from, what they have done, who they actually are. If you are a white man, uh, you know, you get to kind of sail through life in a way that is a little bit different. And I think in that moment, it's Wes Anderson realizing or maybe just coming to a moment of reflection that like, yes, what he has done is amazing for his background and how he got here. And I've never even thought about this. Like, I think there's something really interesting about that moment and the reflection of that. You yeah, because it comes full can... circle. You hear him yes. like talk himself through it and be like angry, taking in information, realizing he's wrong and apologizing in the course of one scene. 
which I feel like is pretty rare in screenplay. Sometimes you'll have like people learning over the course of a movie that they're a mm-hmm. jerk or, you know, like slowly developing. But to have a scene where like the character does the whole cycle of like mistake, education, apology in a minute. I mean, I don't think you see that on film very often. No. And I do think, you know, there's something very interesting and I think pointed at the fact that this is a movie that takes place in a fictional foreign country and Zero really is the only face of color throughout. I do think it's a little bit odd that F. Murray Abraham plays the adult Zero. It did take me a minute when I looked at them like, okay, a little, you know, I was like, you know, I I don't want to like fully, fully dig in on that, but I do think that was an interesting choice. I, I feel like that's a that's a choice of, I believe, Wes Anderson going, I want to work with F. Murray Abraham because he has this energy, but he has nothing. I don't see Zero and F. Murray Abraham. Do you? Not really. Not really. Although I, did I like take F. The, Murray Abraham. Oh, yeah. I did He's take great. the liberty in those like scenes to like freeze the newspaper history. That mm-hmm. you get flashed on screen. You know how like as you're watching those bits, like yes. you see just like, bah, 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 this is what happened to Zero in his whole life. And what is fascinating is if you pause it, you can actually like read all of the articles and learn the entire background of Zero's life. There's so much information there. You learn that like during the war, which we don't get to see, you know, you know, in the film, like Zero led a troop. He led his own battalion. That Hankelman, the cop that we have here played by um, Edward Norton, or Hankels, that Hankels gave him a medal. Uh, you know, you get to see like actually the name of his country like written out, like Al-Salim al-Jabbat, and like learn more about how he arrived in this country without shoes. And actually, if you're looking really closely, you get to see even how newspapers changed. You know, it starts by like an article that's printed in the Transalpine Yodel, a newspaper that comes out twice a day, twice a day. Like, do you know how much I long for a thriving newspaper industry where newspapers come out multiple times and like everybody has tons of jobs and there's like money to be made in the newspaper business? And by the end, it's just sort of this like square font, daily fact, communist news told through a slant that makes it very clear, you know, that like, well, he, yes, he quote unquote kind of got the hotel from us. He needed it, or, you know, this good comrade that we have to have, like sacrificing in the name of our new political system. And the, not only is this just like incredibly detailed and you learn the entire story of the movie before you see the whole movie. Like I was learning that Wes Anderson wrote all of those articles himself. He just like sat down, wrote all these newspaper articles and it makes it feel in a way almost to like a, like a prequel or a teaser to the French Dispatch. Him talking mm. about, you know, the role of newspapers and storytelling and kind of the sliding finances of newspapers, even just in this little segment. I mean, he's a guy with control, right? Like, the, and I think part of me as an audience can buck against a director who I think is this controlling. I was listening to a really interesting conversation between um, between Christoph Waltz and Rafe Fiennes. And Christoph Waltz was kind of interviewing Rafe about what is it like to work with a director who's so controlling, especially controlling in the dialogue. And I thought it was a really interesting exchange. Wes doesn't improvise either, does no, he? Not again, not, not a comma. Yeah, no, why would you? It's... I remember one funny, we had a shot with a, in a, in the, there's a train sequence and the train slows down and it's a snowy landscape and there are all these soldiers. And my line was, why have we stopped in a barley field? There's no way you could tell it was a barley field. So I said, Wes, I know, does it really make sense that he would say this? Like, he said, no, 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 I think it'll be fine, just say. And of course he uses the original line and it, 
doesn't it's fine in fact it's very funny <laughs> I, I remember and i i have to tell you but it's it's so interesting and i'm not i'm not lying mm -hmm. i remember noticing that you said barley field even though there's snow right. in the background right. but barley field evokes the whole eastern european okay. thing you know okay. it's barley it's not wheat okay and they eat broken barley right. okay. you know poor people. Okay. I, I noticed that okay. and I noticed how wonderfully, precisely yeah. observed it is. Okay. Actually, if you want to hear what's interested in doing this in action, there's a little clip of him interrupting a scene of F. Mary Abraham when F. Mary Abraham is trying to order like food at the restaurant as he's sitting down with Jude Law. And you can hear in this clip what's interested come in and be like, eh, can we say it a little bit more like this? Two dozen clair de lune and six clams. Four like, actually make it twelve clams. Four langoustine. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt. I had one thing I forgot to say. A tiny thing. Say the 12 very quietly. Huh, 12. And you can overlap onto it with the four. I love you played that scene because I actually was watching that scene. I was like, how hard would it be to be in a Wes Anderson film? Because there is, it, it is like a stage play. Everything is choreographed. We are watching something. There is, it feels like nothing is left to chance. And I think oftentimes when you think about directors that are, uh, quote unquote, like dictators on set. You know, you have Kubrick or David Fincher, uh, you know, Aaron Sorkin dialogue. You hear all this stuff and it, it always feels weighty, even Hitchcock, you know, weighty. And I think what's interesting about this is he's doing a comedy and there are comic pieces and there's pacing to it. And to me, this is more reminiscent of a conductor. Like he's creating the comedy like it has to work in a certain way the person has to come at that point like everything is a house of cards in this movie and again going back to you know Ray finds like he's running this house of cards trying to keep it all together and making sure that nothing falls down at any given point and so when I've heard him do this in the past yelling at people or getting in there you know it makes me feel the same way I was reading a Mel Brooks biography where he's talking about making silent movie. He said one of the best parts of making silent movie was being able to yell during the takes to get different styles of acting and emotion, like oh, eyes bigger, more of shamed. You know, he's like, and that was so powerful because if one piece is off, none of it works. And I don't think you see that in comedy as much. I think comedy is often viewed as like the shaggier it is, the more fun it is and you know we should have more of these fat moments but I think seeing Ray Fiennes do it to such perfection uh it made you almost understand how that voice needs to be at all times but I will also say for a director who seemingly is very specific he really lets his actors shine like it feels like he's casting Willem Dafoe. Like, he doesn't want Willem Dafoe to change. He just plays up an element. Jeff Goldblum isn't changing. Like, they're not doing these massive... Look, there's no accents truly in this movie. Like, there should be, right? This is a, you know, a movie, you know, like... Um, but right, everyone but it's comes not like Kubrick coming in and, like, smothering Tom Cruise to do exactly what he wants him to do. Yeah, it's like he's not... He's getting... He's opening up his, you know his chest of toys and going like, oh, I want Jeff Goldblum. I want this. And you want the Jeff Goldblum that you know. You want the, you know, you want the uh, Owen like Wilson that droll, you know. Kind of funny, like sitting yeah. there being being the lawyer, but having that Jeff Goldblumness to him. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a very interesting thing of being so controlling, but then on the other side of it, really 
letting the actors just kind of be. Like a lot of these are character actors that are really playing the closest version of what we assume, the, the best version of them, the, the versions that we want to see. I just think there's a really interesting knowledge of how he he plays them. And I'm sure, you know, look, he gets upset with them. And I, I think we all have seen David O. Russell, you know, kind of manhandle actors in that famous like clip with Lily Tomlin. And all that to say is I feel like Ray Fiennes is doing probably the biggest like acting or the biggest character in this film. It's true. Although what's funny is like you listen to like interviews, say with like Tony Revolori from that time and like Mm -hmm. casting Tony. I mean, Tony is like the one face in this movie who's not known, but he's like, he's like made his perfect dollhouse with all his like perfect dollhouse actors in it. And then he does this like wide open casting call to figure out who should play zero. And it's like phenomenal. He stumbles across like Tony Revolori, an actor who I think has gone on to do like some really fun stuff. I love him in dope. He's of course great in the Spider-Man movies. Um, and like, he's just a kid living in Anaheim at the time. And like this casting call that he like participates in, it gets narrowed down to him and one other person. The one other person is his like big brother, Mario. So like Tony is yeah. 17, his brother is like 19. And it's the two of them sharing a bedroom in Anaheim and like both being out for what's going to prove to be like a career changing opportunity you know just like a life-changing opportunity and tony getting it i mean like somebody asked tony like what do you what do you need to know if you're going to be in a wes anderson movie and weirdly like the number two thing that he mentioned was like you need to know that you have to watch what you eat because the kind of clothes that he likes are very very tight prepare yourself for very tight clothes <laughs> wearing, wearing, yeah you're wearing baggy clothes how did you I'm, deal with the tight clothes uh, well you know a lot of exercise and a lot of uh Good diet, made sure I was skinny. <laughs> did he Did he make sure you were skinny? Like, he, he kept being like, uh, let me take that chicken away. You, you're going to eat this uh, no. right here because we got some tight clothes next He week. loves, you know, he loves food. So he'll have uh, his own cook and he'll have these huge feasts every night with all the actors, you know. Wow. And it's great. It creates a family environment. So he wouldn't mind me eating, but I had to do it for myself because if not, I would probably bend down and rip the pants <laughs> seam of my uh, costume. I didn't notice that his clothes looked that tight. Did you? No, but you know, everything is so manicured. It is, nothing looks out of place. And I think whenever you look fantastic, it means that everything is tailored within an inch of your life. I do want to talk about the hotel as a reflection of Gustav. Because at the end, yes, the hotel looks different, but I wouldn't say the hotel is run down. What I would say is the hotel has lost its personality. And to go back to what you're saying about the clothes, like everything is a specific choice, right? When you look at uh, Jason Schwartzman, he looks untucked. He looks unkempt, you're right. And it's not that it is the outfit that is you know, battered and beaten, it's that there is no care in it. Like if Gustav was running that same hotel, I believe it would look beautiful under him because that furniture, that look, that minimalist look could succeed. It's the way that we looked at 2001. Like there is a beauty in that, but there is no one there to, it's, he is a gardener that's constantly watering the plants and looking at everything. So to me, what it kind of feels like is, an instrument sitting on a, you know, a stool without a player. 
And, you know, so I don't think of the hotel as being run down as much as I feel like it doesn't have anyone to play it. Well, I think of it as a place that doesn't care so much about discomfort, I guess, because right. like what what you see in the changes, you know, you see like hallways that are now full of like kind of abandoned room service trays, oh, that like is bags of laundry, yeah. you know, stuff yeah. where it's clear that like there's nobody working, but also that's not even necessarily the hotel's fault. Like when you go to the past, there's like tons of people working. There's like tons of employees. It's almost like you're seeing a business that like contributes to the community by hiring so many people from the community. There's like a bazillion like ushers and waiters and people walking around and like carrying luggage, all these bellboys everywhere. And when you get to the 60s, to the communist era, it's kind of like being alive today. Like companies, the government in this case, is like not hiring workers and there is nobody to like take away the room service trays and the laundry. There's nobody looking out for people. There's not even really waiters. Like what you see at the very beginning is like vending machines. People are having to go get their own coffee, get their own drinks and all around them. All the signs, all the signs are up Rules. It's like rules, restrictions, people telling the customer what they can do because they don't care about the individual customer. I mean, it's communism. They don't care. But I also will say that, yes, while that is a reflection of the time and the changing times, I also think this is about the person who runs the place. Because Mendel's, the bakery, is this burst of pink in a world of dark gray. Like when you first see Mendel's, it really pops And that's not because the town is popping. It's because there's a care, there's a pride there in that store. You know, not the interior, but the exterior, like the way that you see it. And I do think that it just speaks to the idea that anyone that gives, that cares about something. I think it's a difference between like a mom and pop store versus, you know, uh, a Target. You know, there is like, yes, there's a convenience. Yes, I don't have to ask everybody because there are signs there. Uh, But that I think it is about like the care that one person or how one person can make a difference. And I think that that's what this character does throughout the film. Like one person makes a difference. He makes a difference in mainly the life of Zero, who then makes a difference in the author's life, who, you know, started out as Jude Law, who then becomes Tom Wilkinson, and then is just simply known as the author. But this he is a domino in every one of these people's lives that greatly affected it. Even, we even get that woman, like the the little girl, like reading by his grave. And we don't know what will she do. We don't know what she will grow up to do. But you can kind of assume something will happen because this is a kind of nesting story that doesn't have an end. One person can make a difference. Like one person can, you know, I could see Max from Rushmore reading that book, right? Like, you know, that like that idea that there is... It's a very hopeful story, and there's so much more there, but I do think you're right. It's about embracing the art. It's about embracing – there might be a subconscious part of this is like, yes, I do all these specific things. Yes, I do all of – like, I make these choices that you may not like or that you think are style over substance, but I'm doing it, and even if it affects one person, it will have this bigger effect. And I think you see in many – people that try to ape Wes Anderson when it's just style over nothing like a Wes Anderson. I'll take Wes Anderson style over somebody trying to be like Wes Anderson. Like you can't fake that funk, you know, um, because it's so genuine. It's so unlike anyone else. Uh, it's so true. I don't know. Like, I mean, even when he's trying to like channel someone else, you know, which is what he's doing here. I mean, maybe that is part of what I like about Grand Budapest is it's not him like thinking about only the world that he knows. It's like him being really influenced by, you know, that writer, like Stefan Zweig, 
he was alive like in this whole time period of like the 1930s that we're watching. And like he talked a lot about in his short stories about, you know, like what is the purpose of life? Like, where do we find like joy? Where do we find freedom? You know, is freedom the highest good on earth? Like he wrote these stories that were almost kind of like dark, funny, sort of moralistic tragedies about people making the wrong choice, you know, and figuring out what they want to do with their lives and their dreams. And then, you know, he himself, I think, felt like he kind of got kicked out of his paradise, being like in the land where he grew up and he like had to, you know, leave because of course, like the Nazis start rising in, he winds up going to an actual city called Petropolis. I thought Petropolis was like a made up name, but yeah, it was like, a, like it. it is a real name. It is a real city in South America. And he kills himself in 1940, you know? So his story ends in tragedy. He lives a short life a lot, like well, Mr. Gustav. And, and so like Wes Anderson, you know, read a bunch of his stories, you know, he and Hugo Guinness talked a lot about them, but he decided that the truest way to express Stefan Zwieg was not to redo a Stefan Zwieg story. It was to think about all of the, all of the totems that Stefan Zwieg held as important and write about those. And so, I mean, it, 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 and also like picking an author who it feels like relates to him, that he feels like he really connected to as well, like that they both kind of question their, this sort of like beautiful way of, of what, well, of imagining what the world should be. And then also being disappointed. Well, I also will talk about this as these are the movies that people want to see. Whether or not they know it, these are the movies that make money. This is Shawshank Redemption, right? On some level about the choices that you make in life. I'm not talking about like the actual plot. I'm just talking about how you live your is life. It, and is it the jailbreak? Is the jailbreak making you say this? Yes, it is. Oh, by the way, there is, I realized that I did confuse a large portion of Paddington and this movie because there are some similarities in the jail scenes and the prison breaks. You're right. Like the first Paddington came out this same year, but Paddington 2 comes out three years later. And that's the one with the jailbreak scenes that are yeah. so much it just, like it this. Just, I think the Harvey Keitel character and the character played by Brendan Gleeson, I don't know, merged a little bit in my head. But I will say this. Um, this idea like the Shawshank Redemption is like what life is what you make of it and living life to the fullest. And and. But I would also say like a movie like Life is Beautiful, a foreign language film that took America by storm because like, well, yes, they're in these concentration camps, but he's able to bring, you know, this feeling. I mean, and then awfully done is the Jerry Lewis one, the one that no one will ever see the day the clown cried, which I thought after Jerry Lewis died, we were going to finally get a chance to see it. But I do think he destroyed all the copies uh, because I'm, I've, I've read the script. I've seen the readings. Uh, but I do think that this is a this is a uniting factor. This story is at its root, yes, it is about somebody who loves art and 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 curates art. But the story that you just described, this idea of like, what is life and what is the purpose of life is, I think, something that connects people on such a bigger level. It's the reason why I think this is the biggest movie. It's the reason why Life is Beautiful connects. It's the reason why Shawshank, you know, connects. It's it's and I don't even think it's conscious. I don't think people go like, I want to see something that talks about like why we're on this earth. But I do think when that's like a, a, a thematic drive it does bring so many more people to connect to it. Well, yeah, and I think and, that that's the difference of this movie. And what's so intelligent about it, though, is I don't feel like this movie just says beauty is good. Beauty is I what agree. we all need. Beauty I is agree. perfect. Because there's also parts where you see that, like, the pursuit of beauty is dangerous. And it like it like when 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 Monsieur Gustave breaks out of the hotel he or breaks out of the jail, he finally does get his perfume. He starts spraying himself with that perfume. He's covering it as he's trying to escape. And Edward Norton can follow him by his scent. Like the more he sprays himself with perfume, the easier he makes it for himself to get caught. You know, right. it, and there is like this kind of and for someone who is looking for this 
disguises and safe houses, he is literally leading the, you know, he's leading his captor to him. I mean, yeah. And yeah. He is. And even just kind of the, the last beautiful conversation that you have, you know, between like F. Murray Abraham, you know, older zero and Jude Law talking about like the goal of Mich- of Monsieur Gustave's life. He basically says, you know, like he was defending something that was already going to die. You know, he was defending something that was not going to live. But the beauty is that he defended it. I mean, let's just play the speech because I think it's gorgeous. Is it simply your last connection to that vanished world? His world, if you will. His world? No, I don't think so. You see, we shared a vocation. It wouldn't have been necessary. No. The hotel I keep for Agatha. We were happy here. For a little while. To be frank, I think his world had vanished long before he ever entered it. But I will say, he certainly sustained the illusion with a marvelous grace. You see, it's interesting you pulled that clip because I don't disagree. It's a beautiful speech, well acted, everything. But I think the more telling thing is a second later when he says, you know, why do, why do you keep this hotel? And the reason why he keeps the hotel is because it reminds him of his love, like this beauty of his love. It's like, 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 like zero is not to keep the memory of Gustave. It's to keep this totem. It's a totem of this few good years that he had with this woman of his dreams. And I think there is something about that as well. It's like, he's not there it is about this idea of, I don't know, embracing. Yeah. Yes. It, yes. Life that, can be sad, yeah. but there is, a, but you can also keep something so alive. The fact that he still wears it and has it on his lapel is, I thought, like such a beautiful moment. Yeah. Or he's saying that life isn't that simple. That yes, one person can make a difference, but that there's lots of people in life who do matter. That Agatha matters just as much as Gustav, even though this is a movie about Gustav. And Agatha mattered to Gustave because he, I mean, again, in the curating idea, like he interviewed Agatha as much as he interviewed Zero, you know, and that whole idea of like, don't flirt with her. Uh, But to me, it's sort of like Gustave was creating the portrait around him. So I think Gustave wanted to die in that train. He knew what he was doing. Like he, you know, he, he calls out, first of all, their uniforms are ugly, you know, and, uh, and he knows when that ticket is ripped up, his time is over. He doesn't have the niceties anymore. Like that is the only, th- he has a get out of jail free card that is ripped up in front of him. And that to me signals the end of his time. Because the only thing that he has is this connection, this world, that the world, the secret society of keys keeps him alive. The friendships, the connect, you know, this, this interlaced community that I think we move further and further away from, you know, and I think in a weird way in this last 25 months, we've almost gone back into connecting and finding different ways to connect with people again, even though some of it might be virtual. Uh, But if you take away the people in his life, he is no longer there. So he also, it's like, why not get shot now? Because there's nothing for me to live for, because the only thing I have are my connections, my women, and I say that in, in like my loves, I should say, my loves, my my hotel, my this job. But once it all goes, it's like, well, there's nothing here. Once I put up a sign, I'm not needed. I'm dead. 
Once I don't have my police officer friend, I'm dead. And that's why I think that that bookend of those two scenes are really interesting. He comes in and, you know, Ed Norton's like, oh, my gosh, yes, of course. I love you. You're amazing. Like, And, you know, they read the thing. They, they treat him with kid gloves because there's a history. There's a life there. And once you lose that, why are we here? Just to live? Well, and what's interesting, too, is like this is this, this second scene, this second confrontation in the train is like the second time that he's threatened with death. You know, like there's that moment a couple of scenes earlier where he's like clinging to the snowbound cliff and he's holding on with his like bare hands and and Willem Dafoe's like, you know, crushing his fingers. And he's like, oh, well, this is a bit I'm about to die. And what Monsieur Gustave does at that moment is he starts to kind of recite a poem. Like he's like, well, if I'm going out, I'm going to go out beautifully. And yet a few beats later, it's almost like he's so exhausted by having to keep doing this fight by having to put on the polite manners and like kind of mock these people slightly under his breath and be like, oh, the, oh, the ZZ squad. Oh, it's lovely to see you guys again. Nice. The death squads are here. I, I, I think like he's almost just tired of putting on, you know, the good graces. It's like his but impatience. But also that is scene is shot in black and white. Yeah. You know, and, and it's like it's it, you've lost the color. The life is like the thing, the beauty, you know, that he is at least engaged with is gone. Yeah. And yet I just think that that ending line, you know, the one, like, I think his world ended long before he ended it, but he certainly sustained the illusion with the marvelous grace. To me, that feels like the most Wes Anderson line I've ever heard. Like to me, that feels mm-hmm. like the Wes Anderson tombstone. You know, it yeah. feels like him saying, yeah, by the time I was a filmmaker, like, it was all like kind of low budget indie movies. And then like, by the time I got money, all the money was really only going to like superhero movies and the audiences I kept being told weren't there for movies like mine. And I wanted to grow up to be a certain type of movie maker. And I didn't really get to be surrounded by my contemporaries. Like I didn't get to like be a guy who made my movies surrounded at a time by other people who made my movies. I didn't get my society, his society of the cross keys, but he at least in his own way, was going to sustain the illusion that the kind of world he wanted to be a filmmaker in was still there. And he's going to keep making these movies himself. And I think that that's, you know, in many ways, the strongest sentiment you could make about, you know, uh, a filmmaker, you know, a filmmaker who is is true to his own vision and I think we lose that a lot. And I think we are watching a lot of filmmakers who have to make this deal with the devil, like one for them, one for me. And because it's the only way that they can kind of keep their head above water. And there's something about someone who can stay successful and keep on making the movies they want to make in a system that is slowly but surely not having a place for these films. And I did think it was interesting that French Dispatch didn't go immediately to VOD. And I think A24 does a really great job of protecting filmmakers. You know, and even seeing like someone like Mike Mills, you know, I I think it's like protecting these artists to make what they want to make and give them the right release and not just dump them out there uh, on a streaming platform, which, you know, we've seen, you know, from like Denis Villeneuve talking about like being betrayed that his movie is there. And, And I think, you know, we've, It's getting harder and harder to sustain that illusion. Yeah. And that's a big budget blockbuster film. So it's, I don't know. I, I, this movie gave me a lot of respect for Wes Anderson, this movie. And I already was a fan. It reignited my fandom so much so that I immediately went to go watch, uh, the French dispatch, which I had not uh, seen. And, um, yeah. And, you know, I just, I was very, uh, excited to kind of dig back in and go back and rewatch and, and see some stuff. Because I think a lot of the times I just leave a Wes Anderson movie 
and I don't rewatch. Whereas something like a Coen Brothers, I'll revisit a lot, or a Kubrick, I'll revisit a lot, or of course, uh, you know, the work of Justin Lin, I'll revisit a lot in the Fast and Furious. Of course, yes. I mean, I think that the more I watch French Dispatch, the more I'm going to fall in love with that movie too. I think that I think that Grand Budapest, though, for me, is the special one. Like this, yes, this I want this on in space. I don't, sometimes I like get nervous being that definitive because I want to think, I want to weigh, I want to look at my options. But to me, this is just clear cut. Absolutely. I want a Wes Anderson and I want this to be the Wes Anderson because I think to me, it explains him. It it like, it is his best film. It captures him. It has my favorite performance in Ray Fiennes, who, by the way, didn't even get nominated for an Oscar for this performance, which I am still mad about to this day. I mean, do you know who was nominated instead of this? Like, Oh, it was like Eddie Redmayne in The Theory of Everything. It was Steve Carell in Foxcatcher. It was uh, Bradley Cooper in American Sniper. Good God. Brad, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch in The Imitation Game and Michael Keaton in Birdman. I mean, those performances. Well, Michael Keaton in Birdman is pretty amazing. It's fine. But even added together with the other ones, I don't think it's as good as like Ray Fiennes. Who do you think won, by the way? Michael Keaton in Birdman. Eddie Redmayne. Theory what? of Everything. His Stephen Hawking one because Academy is oh, like, right. oh, no. Okay, oh, you're in a wheelchair, you win. Ugh, terrible. What a mistake. Like to me, that is to me, that is one of like the low points of Oscar nominations, which we're about to get into. Oscar season starting, and I want to like start tearing into what gets nominated and what doesn't get nominated. But I will never get over this betrayal of nobody recognizing that this is the this is like probably the greatest thing Ray Fines has ever done. If you like this kind of Ray Fines, by the way, you have to see a bigger splash. I don't know if you've seen this movie. It's um, it's by uh, Luca, Luca Guadagnino. And it's about like Ray Fiennes kind of being on this like Italian poolside villa with Tilda Swinton. And he's this like crass guy who's like walking around naked with his belly out and his dick out a lot. Um, hello, jackass. Uh, he's just amazing. It's that same kind of like posh, profane character. And he does it like the year after this. Marvelous. It's marvelous. But okay, same, not same. This is still, this is still like the ultimate. This is like the perfect pastry. But I do think that when Wes Anderson makes a film, there is just, if anything, it's just variations of good, right? People are like, I love what he's doing. He's doing something interesting. There is a uniqueness to this that is nowhere else to be found. You know, I think you can maybe say Michel Gondry has like a similar aesthetic, like you never know what you're going to get with him. But How did people react to this movie when it came out? Well, a lot of critics really liked it, but the critics who didn't, didn't like it for the same reasons that to me now feel kind of tedious, even though I was one of these critics and I still kind of stand by a lot of this when it it comes to his like midpoint films. Um, They thought it was all style, no substance. Uh, Here's a pan from David Thompson of The New Republic. Um, The title of this article, by the way, was Grand Budapest Hotel is Wes Anderson at his worst. Oh, wow. He says that, well, first he like accuses Wes Anderson of like not having read Stefan Zweig. Uh, he's like wow. for, with zero evidence of like why yeah. he would say that. Um, but then he goes on to say that like there are hints that Ray Fiennes has it in him to portray a worthwhile human being, tender, smart, impulsive, humane, witty. But this potential is smothered by Anderson's chronic preference for guest stars and demented art direction. The tendency is an avalanche of sickening sweetness, a remorseless succession of pretty frames with frosted colors that might come from Viennese patisserie. The vision is unique and inventive, but indigestible and likely to overwhelm some viewers. Under different direction, Gustav might have been a model figure of wayward decency in a world threatened by bullying orthodoxy and fascism. This is Amy's aside. That sounds a lot lamer. 
And then David Thompson goes on to liken it to the blood from the elevators at the Overlook Hotel in Kubrick's The Shining. He says, in that other hotel story, the delight in art direction was at the service of the human story. But in Grand Budapest Hotel, the decoration is a constant onslaught. And finally, it amounts to another intimidation. He says, I understand his fans might be surprised by that observation, but immense style can become authoritarian. He basically is like, your style is not um, arguing against fascism. Your style is fascism. Wow. Interesting. Well, <laughs> you know, but I mean, but maybe there's an idea that saying like being strict about something beautiful, you know, and being strict about something that's, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, it's an interesting argument like that one side of fascism doesn't see another side of fascism. But I guess one is trying to help the world. But the other one, I mean, also they, is try, they think is trying to help the world. It's a uh <laughs> I, I I mean this is a, this is a debate like what you know yeah. what do you fall like what do you fall on like I mean are, are I mean I think I've seen films where thing? I find the like, art direction to be fascism like but mm. I don't think this is it I I am curious that like you know he brought up how he thinks like the Overlook Hotel and The Shining is a better example of art direction coming towards a human story because that's a snowy film and I feel like we should do it right in this series. Yeah. I mean, he, basically David Thompson, as much as I don't like this interview, he's like opening the door to be like, come on, do the shining, which we've been wanting an excuse, even though I know at the same hand, we're trying to tear Kubrick's off of this list. Um, so can we do that? Tear Kubrick off the list? No, do the shining and oh, also tear Kubrick off the list, but I maybe to, to replace yes. it with the shining. Um, all right. Well, look, I think I'm open to, being wooed because I think I definitely felt like I was going to go in and have to fight about Royal Tenenbaums with you. And I mean, I still think out of doing this show for as many episodes as we've done it, 2001 has connected with me in a way that I think is just so important and impressive. But again, it is not a movie as much as it's an art piece, but Maybe that's okay too. I I don't know. Uh, I'm open. I'm open to it. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. But you know what? First, can we do Jackass? I kind of just want to do Jackass. I know it breaks. Our, I know it breaks so our series. But I had so yes. much. Yes, I had so much fun. We just a little detour to do Scream. I kind of want to keep it going. It it and do the original Jackass. Just do something crazy because you know what? There's an argument to be made. We've had Jeff Tremaine on the show before. He came on when we did uh, Buster Keaton's The General. Buster Keaton, that we were arguing, is proto-Johnny Knoxville. You know, a guy I agree. who puts his I body on Jackass, the line for art. Yes. I okay. think Jackass is our new silent films. Uh, or at least has that same, <laughs> that same kind of reaction. My, my experience in that theater was such an amazing time. All right, so Jackass next week, and then we're going to go into uh, The Shining. The following stunts were performed by professionals, so for your safety and the protection of those around you, Paramount Pictures and MTV Films insist that neither you nor your dumb little buddies attempt any of what you're about to see.
Amy, Ooh, it's been a fantastic a conversation. Uh, and uh, keep the conversation going in the Discord. There are special threads for each of these movies. And thank you, as always, to uh, Kim Troxell for creating that yes. amazing art that goes with every Good one you, of Kim. our episodes. Our audio engineer, Devin Bryant, and our producer, our super producer, Josh Richmond, for putting this all together. And, of course, our MVP, Molly Reynolds. Uh, we will see you next week for Jackass. Jackass.